Thanks, everybody, for downloading this episode of Around the World in 30 Minutes or so. Though today's episode's titled a little bit differently. It's around 2015 in 60 minutes or so. Uh, we're going to talk about the year that was in international and a little bit domestic news. Uh, kind of tie a bow on 2015, what we're looking forward to in 2016. Although we get into that towards the end of the thing. Other than that, thank you so much for listening in 2015. And here's hoping that 2016 for us and you is even better. This is Around the World in 30 Minutes or So. I'm Nick Serranos with the Chicago Podcast Network. Find us on Twitter. Enjoy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of Around the World in 30 Minutes or So, because we're both Greek and time has very little meaning to us. We, I am Nick Serranos, joined in studio by Andy Zeminas, director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council. One of the, I, I got your title wrong, didn't I? No, you got it right. Oh, yeah, you are the director. It's, a, it's a, the last name. Let's kick off again. Zeminidis. Zeminidis. I don't know why I can't. I'm Greek and I screw up your name, which I can't even imagine what happened to you with teachers. We, uh, we've done a couple shows together. Uh, next year, we're going to be doing it more consistently. But I wanted to spend this episode, where it's December 30th when we're recording this, 2015. Why not do uh, sort of a rough, you know, we'll do 30 minutes, kind of hit some of the major news stories throughout the year. And, Around 2015 and 30 minutes. <laughs> I thought, you know what? That's what I will title the episode. Yeah. So we talked about the Paris issue and the Paris attacks the last time you were here, uh, which I guess would be about a month ago now. And... That's the story I kind of want to kick off with. We, we've had a month or so, roughly, to kind of deal with everything. And it's interesting that we kind of bookended the year with attacks in Paris. Charlie Hebdo, and, and it shocked me to realize that it was only in January uh, that that had happened. And then 11 months later, they're hit again by just the, one of the most terrible attacks you've ever seen. Uh, not so much in numbers, but just in scope and planning. And it's had a major effect on how the United States and many other countries are treating refugees and immigrants from uh, areas in the Middle East. And we still see the fallout of that up to and including in the second thing that I want to get into today, which is Donald Trump and his kind of the view of the world on him and his very bizarre racist you know, we're not going to allow any Muslims into the country stuff that he's doing. And with you, I'm, I'm curious, you've basically the last month been running around like stuff. What's been going on with you as far, like, has the Paris attacks had any effect on what you do? Yeah, I mean, as you said, we started the year with the Charlie Hebdo attacks. We were all French then, all... Uh, yes. Uh, and at the end of the year... Uh, same thing, but this year, we'll, you know, if if we if we take that was a symptom of a greater condition, and if what we will remember about this year is maybe the world finally waking up to what ISIS really is, and that it really is an existential threat, not something to be contained, not something to do with police action against, not something that will naturally uh, be turned back. But something that threatens lives, threatens Christianity in in Europe. Something not in Europe, in the Middle East. Uh, this is that particular threat is not being talked 
about enough. You know, the Middle East is the home. It's where Christianity was born. Right now, it's where Christianity may die. Uh, and we're having an insane debate about whether what ISIS is doing to Christians in the Middle East should be called a genocide rather than the massacre or murder or what else. Uh, you know, hold on a second, because we spoke uh, the first show uh, about talking historically about what had happened in Greece and in some of the other countries with Turkey as far as whether or not historically it was a genocide. And we had a conversation about that. Uh, that's a word that's interesting to me because politically it has power. It, it's it, unlike a lot of other designations for what happens in the world. If you call something officially a genocide, the world is required by law to take actions to stop it. So legally, the United States cannot call what's happening in uh, Saudi Arabia, in Iraq, in Syria, a genocide, because by international law, they are then required to intervene. It's why things that happen in Africa are not designated as genocide, because once that happens, I think it's the Geneva Convention, correct? No, it's a genocide convention, and so, you know, not, not to confuse this issue with the Armenian genocide, because... Uh, while that was a genocide, it also happened prior to the the genocide convention. In this case, yes, it should be called a genocide precisely because it will invoke the duty to protect. Uh, and the fact is, right now there's a debate. The administration was willing to call what's happening to the Yazidis as a genocide, but not what's happening to the Christians. Uh, the basis, now they've backed up a little bit off of that because of public pressure and pressure by a lot of groups where we're supporting a, an effort led by Assyrians, uh, Assyrian Americans and uh, who it's their people who are uh, being wiped out in, in the Middle East and it's not Saudi Arabia, it's just Syria and Iraq um, but if the Yazidis are being victims of genocide, definitely Christians are uh, the administration is trying to hang its hat on a report by, of all places, the U.S. Holocaust Museum that says, well, because Christians are, you know, it's not a genocide because Christians have the, the option to convert as people of the book. That, that's really not, not the case. You know, when, when ISIS got on all our radar stream, screens, when they went into Mosul in 2014, First thing they did was crucify Christians and mark every Christian's house with the letter. And you figure that the Holocaust Museum and Institute here in the United States would go, oh yeah, the marking of the doors and the, it seems familiar. Yeah, and you know, and we'll be talking to them as well. Uh, again, as you said, it's a, it's a fairly legalistic term, so yeah. you leave it, you know. In the hands of the lawyers. In the lawyers, and they take a strict reading of it. But uh, nevertheless, it's a huge threat. People are finally waking up to it. You know, it's becoming an issue even in the campaign. Um, Secretary Clinton yesterday showed, created some more daylight between her and President Obama by calling it a genocide. 
Uh, obviously, Ted Cruz has, Marco Rubio has, Chris Christie. Uh, but the legal designation is why they're allowed to do stuff like that, though. I mean, that the truth is, Hillary Clinton, as of right now, has no official position in the U.S. government. So she can say basically whatever she wants, and it has no ramifications long term. It does in a political sense, but in an actual legal, true sense of the word. C- correct. No correct. Meaning. And that's why, you know, this is why... Uh, you see a lot of flips from people when they were in the Senate, and then they and then they go into the administration, and they have different uh, right. Different. But at this point, any and all public pressure, waking up the world to this because it was not too long ago where people were were convinced that ISIS was the JV team. Yeah, it was not too long ago where people were convinced that we shouldn't be sending you know weapons to anybody to fight ISIS, that we shouldn't be even doing, you know, bombing campaigns. And frankly, you know, we have woken up from that slumber, fortunately, Uh, maybe not strongly enough. Hopefully it's not too little, too late. It's not little. It's, you know, there, there is a lot of criticism and uh, that the administration doesn't have a strategy in ISIS. I can argue with the sufficiency of their strategy, but it's it's hundreds and hundreds of bombing runs. Um, so, you know, we can say in 2015 we woke up. It's going to be very important how we carry through in 2016, and hopefully it wasn't too late. I guess that's uh, since we're going around and we're going to keep doing stuff. That'll be the, the last thing we say in 2015 about ISIS until it comes up later when we're talking about other stuff. Uh, the other big news story this year, and I'm car- I, we never got a chance to talk about this, was the uh, ending of the embargo with Cuba was a major step forward in foreign relations for the United States. It's kind of a last vestiges of the Cold War being put to the, like the, the death march of the Cold War basically is, is finally ending with that. And we've loosened the embargo and we're allowing people to travel there. I, I believe as of right now, tourism is still not, you can't just go to Cuba. You actually have to have a reason to go. You have to be in the media. You have to have some purpose to your visit. But that's, a, that's something that's kind of gone on. With you and how you look at the world, do you feel that that's been a positive thing? Do you think that it's, do you think it even matters in the long term, or do you think it's more? Because I want to get into something with you dealing with another news story. But it, it, do you feel it's a bread and circuses kind of story? Like it sounds really good, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really change much. So this was again a policy that changed around this time last year. Yeah, and uh, actually, my first piece my of last year was uh, was about Cuba, uh, that I thought the way it happened, and, you know, I, I can concede or the point that maybe it was time to change policy. I think the way it happened was utter capitulation. How do you mean? Well, you know, there's only, what did we get? We got nothing. Exactly. And I'm not talking about for the United States, but Cuba's a human rights issue, political rights issue. You want to talk about the last vestiges of the Cold War? Well, it works both ways, right? It may have been a Cold War policy, the embargo was, but their regime was a Cold War communist regime. There was no loosening on that end. And this is... You, you feel know, there should have been? There should yeah, have been. there okay. should have been. I mean, here, we, you know, another thing that was going on at that time, if you think about it, we were arguing that 
we were going to be able to make Russian policy change because the price of oil was dropping. We were going to make Iranian policy change because the oil was dropping. Our leverage was increasing. The same thing was going on in Cuba. That regime was being kept alive because of its oil lifeline from Venezuela. Venezuela was in trouble. Why didn't we get a little bit more? Now, of course, somebody could have said, you know, the timing, there was an organization of American states summit. you know, it was going to change our greater Latin American relations. If you want to make the argument that we had to change the Cuba policy so we had better standing in Latin America, make that argument. I, I, I can buy that. If you want to make the argument that the Cuba embargo was loosened so we can make life better for the Cuban people or for human rights, you're not doing it with a straight face. You're actually ignoring the reality on the ground. There have been thousands of political arrests in this last year in Cuba. Thousands. The women in white who are mothers and wives and widows, they're sitting there saying the situation is worse for them. We don't have them up as heroes as we had, for example, Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma. And I, like, I always point out to people in Burma, as long as they had Aung San Suu Kyi in jail, we were keeping sanctions on. Uh, we only now took the sanctions off because they made the democratic reform. We didn't take the sanctions off and said, okay, we hope to do democratic reform. Uh, they have increased arrests under this absurd law called the dangerousness law. Okay, I'm, I'm not familiar with yeah, that. Well, I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, and when it comes to it, there is this, um, there's this theory that American engagement is going to loosen things up in Cuba. Well, you know what? The whole world has been engaging with Cuba, except for the U.S., for years, for decades. Europe has had, and Canada, have had unfettered engagement with Cuba. Where's the loosening? And you know what? Maybe uh, maybe commercial flights are not opened up in Cuba, but I can show you my Facebook stream right now and I'll show you how many people I know that are in Cuba yeah, for that, New Year's, including somebody who just came back, Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Yeah, I was. Uh, that, that was that was. So I'll leave you with Cuba on this, since you're a big West Wing fan, and I'm and hopefully a lot of your listeners are too. You'll recall the debate episode, Game On. Yes. Where Albie Duncan was the Republican spin guy for President Bartlett. And he spoke about why engagement with China is so critical. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, engagement with China is critical because, you know, instead of uh, forcing, yeah, he basically said trade will make them open up human rights. And C.J. Craig tells him, perfect answer. And he said, except there's a part of that answer that I'm not saying. We hope. Yes. And that's our. this is my problem with well, Cuba. I'm just, it bothers my brain if we don't finish it because that isn't his line. We know that the Chinese are going to be making us basketballs whether we sell them cheeseburgers or not. So let's just sell them cheeseburgers. Yeah. yeah. And then it's we hope because the, the, a lot of the rhetoric that I heard about Cuba is the same rhetoric that I heard when we gave China most favored nation status uh, for trade reasons during the Clinton administration uh, when we gave Vietnam special trade status. And if you look at the status of human rights and political rights in those two countries 20 years after that, no change. 
So if you want to argue we had to do Cuba because of general Latin American relations, make that argument. Let's stop pretending. Let's stop pretending that we care about the human rights of the Cuban people because part of this deal that nobody, that nobody is crying bloody murder over, and you as a radio personality should be, is they're cutting off funding for what was our version of Voice of America or Radio Free Europe into Cuba. So we're not even going to do pro-democracy propaganda in Cuba uh, anymore. This, the cash flow is increasing to this regime. Growth is, uh, is projected to increase in 2016. Everything is projected to increase except political freedom. Going on the same idea of the changing of sanctions, we should also take a minute to look at the deal that the United States also made with Iran for uh, trying to prevent them from getting a nuclear weapon. Uh, by The deal, as I understand it, is we loosen some of the economic sanctions. They essentially agree to UN and the United States inspections to make sure that they're not trying to enrich uranium. Your, you know what? I'm not even, I'm not as versed as I should be. Your opinion on that deal, sir? Yeah. Uh, it, it was another deal that I was particularly critical of, not in favor of it. Uh, For almost the same reasons, correct? Uh, no, a little bit different reasons. I thought uh, I thought it was set up and negotiated in a manner that I I couldn't support. You know, it took it took certain things off the table that weren't even part of the negotiations. For example, Iran's support of Hezbollah. Right. Uh, it was done only as a nuclear deal. Uh, ultimately, it may work as a nuclear deal. We, the problem is we won't know for 10 to 15 years. Okay. That's the deal. right? But this is going to last for 10, 15 years. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and at the end of that 15 years, if there hasn't been real progress in the relations between the West and Iran or a change in the, in the Iranian regime, they could pop off everything and you know, be nuclear ready. So uh, I'll concede for discussion's sake that maybe it'll work on the nuclear end, the nuclear weapon end. But what about Hezbollah? This is one of the world's largest funders of terrorist organizations, and you're about to give them $100 billion. Every time I talk to you, I end up becoming more and more sad about the planet. I just want you to know that as a friend. I, I feel that that's important. Yeah, and, and it, what's also kind of important to watch in, over the last couple of weeks is they make, they make um, progress on some of the nuclear... Uh, issues for example they started shipping out some of their already enriched uranium to russia at the same time they start testing missiles and firing it at some of our ships to show that yeah we may be giving up nuclear uh, capabilities but we'll still be a you know we can be a menace and the, the prime power in the region so uh, this goes back to a failure that I believe we had in 2009 when the Green Revolution occurred in Iran okay. with the middle class and students, and, they, and we let them get trampled. Uh, my biggest problem with this nuclear regime is, or with this nuclear agreement or the agreement with Iran 
is uh, once again we go back to Albie Duncan saying we hope uh, you're not going to do regime change the way you did Saddam Hussein anymore. You're not going to invade a country. Invading Iran, having a, a war with Iran is n not very realistic at this point. But it seems we have given up the goal of evolving that regime. You know, it took us... We never believed that we were just going to live with the Soviets in perpetuity. We didn't know when the Soviet Union was going to end, but we had radio-free Europe. We had covert operations. We were trying over the entirety of the Cold War to change the Soviet regime or support things like solidarity in Poland and all the rest. I don't know if we've given up that goal in Iran and are kind of hoping that, you know, trade and oil and all the rest is going to change that. And, and my final problem with that deal is, uh, you know, what we're seeing in the Middle East from September 11th all the way to what's going on with ISIS right now is a civil war within Islam between secularists and Islamists, between Shia and Sunni, between different strands of Sunnism and all the rest. When it comes to Iran, Iran is a openly and clearly Shia power. If, not only if they get nukes, let's, again, I'll say, I'll, I'll start with the premise that they're not going to get nukes. Okay. Right? Even though I don't really believe that, but I'll start with for that the sake of this discussion. for the sake of this discussion. If you are empowering empowering them to get more aggressive in the region, what is going to be the response of a Saudi Arabia, of an Egypt, of a Turkey? So you know, I don't know. And if you looked at it, all the the months that I was in Washington, and everybody only was paying attention to what. APAC and American Jews and, and Israel was saying you know, the Arab countries, the Sunni Arab countries were actually lobbying for Iran to be attacked. So if that's how they felt about it now, what happens if Iran becomes more aggressive? So I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not thrilled with it. It's something that's going to last into the next presidency and it's something we're going to have to be on guard for on for a long time. There's a deal, keeping in line with the foreign policy deals, there's one thing I actually did want to ask you about when it happened. Because uh, to me, it seemed like a lot of people being very happy with themselves and what they felt they had accomplished. And that's this climate change deal. Sorry, there's the clip like. of it. The, the climate change deal in Paris that they made. And it's one of those things that sounds great, and it makes for great press. But it depends on, similar to what you're saying, a lot of hope that countries will honor these agreements with very little punishment if they don't. Do you, first of all, I've never asked you this, when it, when it comes to global warming and climate change, do you feel it should be a priority of the world, or do you think that it's number, as they say in Apollo 13, that's problem 855, and we're on problem four? Like, I, I've never actually gotten No, I, I, I think it's, you know, if it's not number one, it's, it's, just, it's pretty close. I'm not talking about two or three. I'm talking about 1A. Okay. Because when it, when it comes to climate change, it's not only an issue of our environment and our, and our life. It's an economic development issue. Uh, it's, a, it's a human rights issue because people are going to be going through droughts and food shortages uh, and floods because of this. It's also, it could lead 
to the next generation of technology and be a you know a, an economic driver if we go and invest in renewables right that could take that that could be our you know 21st century equivalent of doing the interstate highway right work so you know because there's so much involved in climate change from war to resources to to hunger which to honestly poverty, we haven't to, even really gotten into yeah. it yet uh, I, I think it's a challenge of our time See, I, I agree with you that and inequality that and inequality i would call the challenges of our time which and I would argue that they they are almost they're they're connected in a way, where the the failing of the environment is going to make the, those who have and those who have not the ones who don't have, which you know is basically anybody who's working middle class and, and lower, is going to be forced into a scenario where they're going to be fighting for you know twenty years down the road if things stay as they are now. People will be fighting for the scant resources that are left. And when I say people, I mean, you know, smaller countries, countries that don't have the economic power to keep importing stuff that they need. You're going to end up seeing people with massive fighting just in country for resources. And that's going to be, you, you basically put it to you this way, add a shortage of water to the Middle East. Like They're already short on water, but add a true you know, five-year drought to the Middle East where there is no water, and watch that place. It's it's. If you look at the flashpoints today, look at the flashpoints today. You know, it, it, let's start with the longest-standing issue at, at the UN Security Council, and that's Israel and Palestine. The part of that solution, or lack of it, is an argument about water. Look at the the the. Uh, Syria versus Turkey. Water is involved there. Uh, just wait to see what's going to happen between Ethiopia and Egypt because the Nile, you know, goes from yeah. uh, Ethiopia up there. They're damming it. <laughs> They're starting to put a dam up there. So there's uh, Cyprus, which we've talked about, doesn't have a lot of fresh water. And Turkey has built a, a freshwater pipeline to occupy Cyprus to provide Turkish Cypriots with water. And every time they do something to upset Mother Turkey, they turn off the water. So you're right. These resources are always uh, going to be in play. Now, the good news is, since I always bring you down, <laughs> the good news is things don't change, don't stay the way they are. In 2005 and 2006, we were talking about, oh, we've hit peak oil, we're done, we're going to be slaves to the Middle East and all the rest. And for years from now, we're going to be a net exporter of energy. The real challenge is what do we turn that into? What do we turn the shale oil and the, the fracking revolution into? That's... That's what I believe uh, Paris successfully put us on a road on. There's not, you're right, there was nothing you know, uh, really enforceable, but it was, it was useful for a couple of reasons. A deal, first of all, had to get done because the previous ones didn't get done. Kyoto just didn't get done. If something did not come out of this, everybody would have thrown up their hands, and who knows what would happen. 
it, it established a global consensus, and it was, uh, you know, I've been, obviously I've been, in, in the case of Cuba and Iran already, I've been pretty critical of this administration, but this administration has had, you know, some solid string of many successes on, uh, on environment. First of all, coming to an understanding with China, who's the worst polluter, polluter yeah. right now. Uh, and if you can get China to start committing to change, okay, that and, and changes a lot. All right. We're coming up on our, you know, 30-minute mark, and which is not a hard line. You want to do a lightning round? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was going to go through and get some other stuff, but a lot of these are more domestic, and I know we try to stay away from some of that. Uh, I do want to get into a couple things domestic-wise with you. It's 2015. It's about to be 2016. Yeah. It's going to be January 2016. Yeah. We are 11, well, 10 months and a week away from the presidential election. Your opinion, sir, and I will give you as much time as you would like to have, is why not air talk about it? We haven't talked about it before. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump's candidacy for president. Andy, go ahead. Well, we, we've kind of indirectly talked about it before when, right. we, talked up, when we talked about Europe. Right. And, I, and uh, there are, uh, there's a lot of anger in democratic populaces worldwide. There's a lot of, hey, I'm falling behind. And it's not only white, angry, white male syndrome. Uh, There's a lot of people we still have not, no matter how much we want to trumpet, coming back from the economic crisis. A lot of people got hurt really bad from 2008, you know, for for a four-year period. We are living in a society not only in the United States, but most notably in the United States because we believe in the American dream, that we have finally reached a generation that for the first time they believe their kids will not be better off than they are. And uh, they, I am that generation, and I believe that. Yeah. So, um, so, by the way, I just want to say that so do most of my friends. We actually talk about this all the time. I had a conversation with a friend of mine. She just had a baby two years ago. And we were speaking about this, and her husband is a, a police officer. And I looked at her and I said, I believe that in today's world, having a kid is a selfish act. And she's a mother, and she agreed with me. Well, I have three I disagree, but I also think everything is a, is a matter of choice. And I, I hear people with very strong opinions, and I wonder what they do on election day. Because yeah. we, we elected a governor with 37% turnout, or 32% turnout, and we even clap and applaud ourselves when we hit 60% turnout uh, for a presidential election. And it's, uh, that's really a shame in, in the world's longest standing democracy. Uh, if people you know, want to resign themselves to that, it, it's a policy choice. Not being better off, not investing in the future, not doing the right thing is a policy choice. And uh, we also have to stop, as voters, passing the buck. If we do not vote, if we do not engage in the political system, if people want to say, you know, we do a lot of petitions and people say, my signature doesn't matter. That's not true. That is not true. Talk to a congressman, right? Maybe you you by yourself can't you know, affect a presidential election, go talk to a congressman and they'll tell you, you know, if I get 10 letters on the same subject, 
from within my district, I start paying attention. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right about that. There's, there's uh, a lot of people will say that uh, one of the most interesting things that they learn as they get older, uh, and I've talked to some of my uh, relatives and some of my friends' parents, writing a letter to a congressman, an actual letter, not an email, but an actual letter to a congressman, registers. Like, they do it. Not to mention the fact that we live in a time where your local government is actually more important to your life than the presidential election. A lot of people say that, but I'm not sure because right now, at this point, let's put it this way. If it wasn't for the feds and and the economic stimulus and all the rest, we wouldn't have had a local government today. Fair we, enough. We bailed out. You know, this is the big difference between the United States, Illinois. When people say Illinois... Uh, is like Greece, yeah, m- maybe. Except you know, Washington D.C. as opposed to Berlin decided uh, to to have very generous bailout terms or blank check for Illinois. Just but for the sake of, of comedy, just whenever you say the word Berlin, don't you get a little bit of a chill? I know that they're not who they were in World War II, but whenever anyone goes, Berlin said something in my head. I just picture a guy with a Charlie Chaplin mustache being very angry. Well, I, I, at this point, I picture that that uh, kind of goofy general in uh, of the first order standing on the new Death Star <laughs> with his red banners I'm, behind I'm him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, that uh, wasn't indicative of, <laughs> indicative of World War II at all. That wasn't Hitler at all. I don't know what you're talking about. The symbolism there was uh, not. It's very subtle. You're, you're seeing something that I don't think was supposed to be there. But uh, but uh, it's real, what, the red banners. What, what a great way to circle back to Trump. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, there's oh, uh, God. you know, people are angry. They're looking for somebody who they think sticks up for them. Well, you, the American president has the line, right? The 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 greatest line that Aaron Sorkin may have ever written, which is the uh, Americans uh, you know, will cross a desert and they'll see a mirage, and when they get to the mirage and the water's not there, they'll drink the sand because they don't know any better, because at least they think it's there, and that's what I think Trump I, is. I you know I'm I'm not sure I agree with Sorkin on that. I mean, Sorkin is famous for a lot of uh, you know, proselytizing. I mean, the newsroom was. Uh, particularly adept at that but i think there are certain there are certain um traits and if you look if you look at you know presidential elections in the past and there are a couple of polls there's a a couple of questions now hindsight may be 2020 but it seems like the winning candidate always wins a couple of questions one is he cares about somebody like me and b I'd rather have a beer with him or her than the other guy. So Trump, maybe because he doesn't really care to be judged on policy. He's, you know, he's out there speaking in generalities. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier to, you know, to digest because policy and a lot of the problems we have, going back to our discussion on genocide, there is nuance Right in using the word genocide as opposed to massacre or assault or murder, right? Trump has made a strategic decision. I don't care about nuance. I'm not engaging in that game. Trump, for anybody who witnessed his uh, battle of the billionaires with Vince McMahon during World Wrestling Entertainment, is exactly the same character. 
for the record, I, I, I'm a diehard wrestling fan. No one who has ever appeared on Monday Night Raw in a recurring role should ever be president. No one. <laughs> it's not, and, and I, well, I will, I will remind you, in 2008, there was a special appearances only by video by Barack Obama, one, John McCain, was, and Hillary Clinton. <laughs> which, which, for the record, both McCain and The Rock uh, did Do You Smell Like Different Versions of Do You yeah, Smell What The Rock yeah. Is Cooking, which you figure some one of the producers would have given them at least one of them a different line. Yeah. Barack Obama should end up with Have a Nice Day. Right. So, you know, uh, bang, bang. Bang. this anger is coming. So, so Trump uh, obviously um, embodies it. This anger on the right, uh, you know, the anger on the left has taken different forms over the last few years. There, there was Occupy Wall Street. Uh, now there's Black Lives Matter. Right? You could argue and Bernie Sanders' campaign itself is, is, is almost the, the opposite side of the coin to Trump. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, a fair, there's a fair amount of populism in both. There's left populism, there's right populism, but I think Trump is beyond... Uh, populism he's he's tapping just a general anger you hear people say oh you know, i heard somebody the other day say oh trump is just expressing what we all think but I, but are not saying it that's horrible i hope that that's not true uh and which shows how disengaged uh, we are now what's going to be interesting is what happens you know a month from now because Everybody who has dismissed Trump has been wrong, and he's writing at 40% of nat national polls. Uh, you know, if he wins Iowa, if he wins Iowa, he could run the table. Yeah. All right. So, on the other hand, we may be in for the most fascinating year there in, on record, because you could have Ted Cruz winning Iowa. You could have, you know, Chris Christie or John Kasich making their comeback in New Hampshire and then Trump winning South Carolina and then one of the Florida guys winning Florida. And, and then it's and, all bets off going into Super then, Tuesday. Well, yeah, but Super Tuesday is not the Super Tuesday once was. We remember Tsunami Tuesday in 2008, right? California now is no longer in that group. Really? California has pushed itself, its primary back to June. So, you know, we we could be going into something that everybody talks about you know, uh, almost as an academic exercise, almost cheers for because they've never seen it. But imagine going into a brokered convention, and all of a sudden you have... Has there, has there been a brokered convention in the last 20 years? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. No, no. Yeah, I don't think in my lifetime. No. Because I, no, I was born in 82, so no, no right? No. Yeah, we've always not, known... Not, not in my lifetime. Jesus Christ. The last time would it be what, 68, we knew who everybody was going to be. and no, that. Uh, well. No, I'm, I'm, I'm honestly trying to think. I, I think the last time that the Democrats, for example, had a, a broker convention was FDR. The first time FDR won the nomination. He came in, and there was a presumptive nominee, and he came back at the convention and basically won it from the floor. Well, I think this, that's be, it. this could be hist history being made. Uh, Could you right imagine now. a brokered convention in the world of social media? Yeah. So and, the NBA and, draft and, on crack, and which a, is the NBA draft. And in a pretty... Oh, come on, that was a good and, joke. And, in, and in, a, in a hugely divided Republican Party between, you know, uh, when you could have, you know, evangelical Christians 
the establishment and neocons, economics. So the, you Jesus. know that's uh, that that would be fascinating. Well, who the other who is, plays the kingmaker at that point? Well, is the, it Paul the, Ryan? Well, is Trump it by his else? own presence almost nullifies the kingmaker syndrome because he's a self-financed campaign. No one's controlling his purse strings except him. So at some point. He picks up a little bit of financial support. It doesn't have to be a lot, but enough to keep him in the race. Trump could just stay in that even if his numbers were to keep dropping, which even if his numbers had a, a, a historic drop, he's still going to go into uh, primary season with 20% poll. You know, bar yeah, but when we, you know, we've skipped ahead to the convention, so it doesn't matter what your financing is like. Yeah. It matters who's controlling the delegates. So yeah. uh, that that. That could be very interesting, but then again, you know, it may be just wishful thinking. You know, he could win Iowa. He's a then he's already ahead in Ohio. I mean, in uh, New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada, and uh, you know, th- there is a scenario where conceivably he locks up his nomination even faster than Hillary locks up hers. All right, we're ten and a half months out. Do you think that Donald Trump is the Republican nominee come November? No. Who do you think? But I didn't think it was, he was going to be this far either. This far either. Neither did I. Like, that's the thing with Trump. I, I, are you a South Park fan? Do you watch South Park at all? No. It's a really funny. Uh, this last season was very interesting in South Park. They did, for the first time ever, connected stories, right? Like, every episode was part of a larger thing. One of the earliest episodes, it's they deal with illegal immigration and the Trump phenomenon where, did you watch it back in the day, South Park? No. Okay. There's a character on the show. His name is Mr. Garrison. He's the kid's teacher. In the early parts of the show, like 15 years ago, he was just a crazy teacher. He had a puppet that was like he taught with. And it was basically, he was a closeted homosexual, and the puppet was how he dealt with it. As the show's gone out, he's gone through a lot of different changes. He's become this just totally extreme, homophobic, racist character who's kind of like the reflection of the right. Like, that's who he always plays. In the episode that they did... He decides to run for president under the policy, and this is a podcast, we can't get away with it, but if you are listening with the kids, I am about to swear, so just deal with it. But his policy is, I want to take everyone who's hurting America and fuck them all to death. And somebody goes, well, what do you mean by that? He goes, you mean you're going to get them with economic sanction? He goes, no, I am literally going to fuck them all to death. The policy comes into play. The, the episode does it as a, you know, as a parody, but basically it's Canadians have left Canada and are illegally immigrating to the United States. The question of the episode becomes, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Why are they doing it? And finally one of the parents asks, one of the Canadian parents, like, why are you guys all coming here? And the Canadian parent gets very sad and very soft, and he goes, it all started as a joke. <laughs> and they go, what do you mean? There was this man, and he was, he was running for prime minister, and he just kept saying the most ridiculous things and doing the most ridiculous things and we all thought it was funny we just thought it was hilarious so nobody did anything to stop him because we just thought it was such great entertainment and then about the time we all got together and we're like all right let's get serious and really pick somebody to run he was already being sworn in and it, you know it's trump right and then they show you a canadian version of trump whatever but i'm afraid that that episode of a moderately successful cartoon is going to prove prophetic to what happens to the United States. Because right now, I think that there is a perception of, listen, whether or not they want to admit it or not, every late night show, every comedy show, 
Every stand-up comedian, everything that's funny, South Park included, The Simpsons did it too, where there's, they're, they're all joking about the idea of Trump, right? But it keeps his name out there, and it keeps his name out there. And there's an argument to be made that in today's world, name recognition is almost as important as what you actually say, right? More people know who Kim Kardashian is than know who John Kerry is. It's, it's just that the world that we live in, it's entirely possible that come July, Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee for the Republican Party and is looking forward to Hillary, who, I'm sorry, I'm a Democrat, I would vote for Hillary. She does not have a personality that excites me. I'm not excited to vote. I was excited both times to vote for Barack Obama. People can call me stupid, they can call me foolish, especially the second time, but he was the kind of presence where you're like, it galvanizes you. You, you get up out of your seat and cheer for the man. He has that... Yeah, but you know, I mean, listen. You're again. You're you're thinking almost nostalgically. Again, uh, we're hearing certain people say things. John, nobody's excited about Hillary. Okay, great. Were people excited about her in 2008 because Barack Obama just barely beat her? Yeah. Okay. She got more votes as a losing primary candidate than any than most people got as winning primary right. candidates. So. You know, uh, and her her fundraising is at a clip, and and if you're talking about name recognition, no, right, you're, you're, so so there's I mean, is she is she is she fiery? Is she uh, in, inspiring uh, as Trump? I mean, as uh, Obama? No, but I don't. I'm not sure what what people are going to really judge this particular. Race. What's going to be the, uh, the flip factor in 2008 in the primaries? Barack Obama was able to prevail over Hillary for a couple of reasons: the positions on Iraq, and then this idea of change. Right? The Clintons are the old. Well, and also are, the economic collapse. No, the, econo change. No, the economic know, collapse was how Obama beat. McCain. No, no, you're right. But what I'm saying is the economic collapse also opened people up to the idea of change. I, I agree, but I actually think had that the the meltdown started even four months earlier, Hillary Clinton would have been the nominee okay. and not Barack Obama, right? Uh, now, there's a lot of things that we know. People clearly want to feel safer. People want to feel like, you know, that, uh, that things are going to go their way. Who's going to give them that feeling? Now, Trump, you know, if you look at the... The polling, and not just the top line where he is, what is it that appeals to people? Strength, 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 strength. Will that some of that strength turn into a weakness? Will some of his tactics that work well on Jeb Bush come across as bullying if he does it to Hillary? Uh, Jeb Bush clearly gets unnerved by Trump. I, I, I would bet a lot that Hillary will not react the same way. No, I agree with uh, you. I feel like Jeb Bush reacts very similarly in a weird way. The same way that John Kerry reacted to George W. in that election, where it's almost like he's standing there going, look at this guy. Like, how is yeah. this guy? Like, I feel like that was John Kerry's mistake in 04. It was just constantly standing now, there going, Now, I'll how? tell you something that would be fascinating. Trump versus Christie, if they if they emerge as the top two guys in New Hampshire and go at each other, because in New Hampshire, see, uh, I'm a the, wrestling the, fan. The, when you say go at each other, I'm just picturing them in a ring in Jersey. <laughs> but the, 
in the, Atlantic City in Trump's main, casino. The main New Hampshire newspaper, the biggest, the most important endorsement went to Chris Christie, and that endorsement was so important because it's not a one-time endorsement. Then they do all kinds of fluff stories on you and bad stories on your. And Christie is clearly going to go all in in New Hampshire. So let's say Cruz wins Iowa, and now Trump really needs to win New Hampshire, and it's Christie versus Trump going at each other's jugular. Yeah, there, there's, there's all kinds of drama coming up in uh, in February. We're gonna talk. We're gonna end the show in a minute. We talked about this. Here's my final question to you: Are you optimistic for 2016, or are you pessimistic for 2016? In do you feel that we will make strides to make the world a better place, or do you see it, I don't want to say getting worse, but almost standing pat? Do you think we've, or do you think that something will happen? And actually, more so than that, screw that question, it was a stupid question. Here's the question I want to ask you. I was thinking about it before. You deal with a lot of international people. You deal with uh, organizations that kind of go and have dealings around the world. How is the American political process to people that you've met from other countries perceived on more of a ground level around the world? Are we a joke to them in the way that we do stuff? Do they follow our stories? Is people Are people in Europe aware of what's going on here with Donald Trump and Hillary and Bernie Sanders? Like, is it is it a story that's followed there, or is it... Yes, it's, okay. I mean, it's followed. And, I mean, this is why... I mean, there was a Gallup poll... Yesterday, yeah, Barack Obama is still the most admired man in the world. Pope Francis comes second. Or, you know, Hillary Clinton is the most admired woman in the world for the 14th year straight. Really? Yeah. So, you know, the fact is, is that people still look to America. We make a difference in a lot of areas. Uh, we're not universally loved, and we're blamed for a lot of things. But at the end of the day, people, you know, they want to come to the U.S. They want the U.S. to come to the rescue. So people follow what happens in the U.S. probably a lot closer than what they follow elsewhere. Now in Europe, they'll follow what happens in Berlin, well, you know, what's happening in Germany a lot closer. In, uh, in Asia, they'll follow developments in Beijing uh, a lot closer. But everybody is following uh, what's going on in the United States. Uh, That's am I, uh, am I? Well, you know what? We say it's embarrassing, but look at the world. Fair enough. Look at the world. I mean, you want to you want to give me I mean, Trump? Darth I'll Vader. give you. I'll give you Victor Orban. You know, I'll give you Darth Vader know, in the Ukraine. Yeah, you know, the, there's you know, there's we haven't even talked about Vladimir Putin. We haven't talked about you know. You know what? That's a good point. We should probably uh, talk about Putin for just a minute, otherwise he'll come kill us both for doing uh, a podcast yeah. about the world and not mentioning yeah. it. I mean, but Putin, you, you'd almost have to say, is one of the, you know, obviously over the last decade, probably the most consequential world leader. Uh, there's a debate on whether he comes out stronger out of 2015. Everybody thought going into 2015 they had him, you know, on the ropes. He's coming out of 2015 arguably stronger but oil prices are going down uh you know there there's a lot of question marks up there now i'm by nature an optimist and i can't tell you i'm pessimistic uh, about 2016 because then i shouldn't be doing the job that i'm doing 
I'm guardedly optimistic. There is a chance to really make a lot of progress on a lot of fronts. But uh, as when we tell, when we talk about sports and we say it's their game to lose, we could as easily go backwards, right? We could see 2016 uh, as a point where, you know, we defeat ISIS, we get a deal in Syria, right? Uh, We reach some understanding with Russia. Uh, that keeps their adventurism out of or from further expanding in Ukraine, where climate change really becomes a frontline part of the agenda, where the European Union shows solidarity and actually starts solving some of its economic issues. On the other hand, I could equally, you know, where the second longest standing issue before the UN, uh, Cyprus, is solved and reunified or takes substantial steps of reunification. On the other hand, I can give you a scenario where the year we watch the death of the European Union, where we get to a complete and utter chaos in the Middle East that wipes out borders, that is a full-blown civil war you know, between Shia and Sunni and between secularists and Islamists, uh, where oil prices are going through the roof, where we end 2016 with China laughing at us all. Um, but this is why we all have to pay attention. This is why people have to listen to programs like this. People have to read. People have to vote. If we, if we resolve one thing in 2016, is that you should only be allowed to open your damn trap if you show up at the ballot box. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, say goodbye to the people, Andy. Happy New Year. Let's all get out. Everybody can make a difference. 2016 is our year. That was Andy, the the director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council. I am Nick Sarantos with the Chicago Podcast Network. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This will be the last show that we post in 2015, so this is the first year we've started all of this. I want to thank you. Uh, for those of you who have listened so far, and anyone who joins in the next little bit, uh, I also thank you as well. Ladies and gentlemen, Happy New Year, and may your 2016 be better uh, in some way than 2015. Thank you so much. We out! Thank you for downloading this episode of the Chicago Podcast Networks Around the World in 30 Minutes or So. Uh, you can find us on Facebook under Chicago Podcast Network, Twitter at Chi-Town Podcast one and you can f- email us on Gmail at Network at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and have a wonderful new year. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it.